Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am he and you are. Hey, what's going on, man? Today's episode is powerful. We have Sophie Medlin, who is a dietitian in England. So uh, if you might detect a, a bit of an accent, a, a lovely accent, I might say. Uh, we, this, ep- listen, listen to this entire episode, beginning to end. It's powerful. We spend the first hour of this episode talking about food and nutrition. You're going to learn how to fight a cold. Should we do hot yoga? Uh, is too much fiber a problem? We're going to talk about food and it's linked to ADHD, how to live a long life. What are the foods? What are the habits to, that, that, that are created that we need to do to live a long life? We're going to find out, do we need to take fish oil? Do, do you need the omega-3s? And, and if so, what kind? And, oh, we really get into milk. There's, there's like rice milk, oat milk, almond milk, all the milks. Uh, so we talk about should we be drinking dairy milk? And uh, we talk about if you're a parent, how to talk to your kids about nutrition. And we get into like what your cravings tell us. Like uh, is, it, is it telling me I need salt? Is it telling me I'm stressed? Like what do our cravings tell us about what we need in our lives? Uh, we talk about uh, why, why TV triggers our cravings and how do we manage that. Oh, you're going to love that part. Um, and we even get into, you know how when you were a kid, your mom gave you milk and cookies before bed. We're going to talk about the science behind getting milk and cookies before bed. Oh, yeah. If you like milk and cookies, this is going to be the episode. We're going to talk about the best sources of protein. And at the end, we spend the last... Uh, 20 to 30 minutes of this episode talking about how she escaped an abusive relationship. It's a very powerful, very inspirational. Uh, I, every, I, you're just going to love this. Uh, uh, it, let's get into the episode. We got Sophie Medlin. Uh, and once again, if you haven't been to thrivewithleo.com, uh, go check it out for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, I'm working on a PDF. We're going to link to uh, some daily routines, some nighttime routines, uh, some midday routines. You know, a lot of us, we struggle with that midday slump. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to share with you uh, um, how to overcome that midday slump in the, uh, if you sign up at, or just sign up for the email at thriveatleo.com. Uh, all right, with that said, let's get into the episode. Hi, Sophie. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm, I'm super excited and super grateful that you we are doing this again. <laughs> I know, round two. <laughs> Lucky for you, I have a really bad memory, so I don't really remember anything that we talked about anyway, so we're good. Oh, I love it. I love it. I um, So wait, wait, first of all, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I don't really eat breakfast, plus it's like six o'clock in the evening here, so no breakfast this morning. I generally do kind of a 16-8 fasting thing. Whoa. All right. So then what's the first thing that you eat in the morning? So the first thing I'd eat would usually be, it depends, like, especially with isolation. I just, unless I exercise in the mornings, I'm not really a morning person, so I don't generally. Then I might not eat anything until kind of one, two. I kind of just wait and t- see until I'm hungry. Um, and then I've eaten a couple of things today. I've eaten some nuts and I feel like I ate something else, but I've forgotten what I ate. I was trying to, funnily enough, I was trying to remember earlier what I ate. But anyway, I'm going to have something proper for my dinner. 
I, yeah, I literally can't remember what I've eaten today. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> I well, you know, I'm I'm asking be uh you know, because I was listening to another podcast earlier and it was talking about how um, you know, it was like a Zen master. It was like I eat when I'm hungry and I sleep when I'm tired. And for me that's such a a, a tough thing to do. It's like I'm I'm afraid to like trust that process and I talk to other people uh, and my my girlfriend she's like She's tracking everything. She has an app. And I, I wonder, like, are, like in terms of diet and nutrition and, 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 you know, keeping track of it all, is it based on personality? Is it, does, is it a one-size-fits-all? Is it better for some people to track and, and other people to intuitively eat? Or is it that you should start off tracking so then you can develop an intuition? Uh, you know, what, what's the process? Yeah, I think that when you've got a good understanding of – food and the foods that you like and the nutritional qualities of them and you're quite well tuned into your body then which is work that you can do with a dietitian or with someone who's trained in that kind of stuff then you can kind of be a bit more intuitive with it um, and of course there are days where like I will just eat everything because I'm stressed or because I'm really tired or because I'm not very happy like those things happen or because I'm being sociable or it's a special occasion or whatever but most of the time, if I'm busy and I'm productive and I'm in a good headspace, then I just eat when I'm hungry. And generally, if I'm careful about not eating um, too much in the way of like refined carbohydrates, then my appetite has a pretty good lid on it most of the time. So I'm pretty lucky in that sense. Uh, do carbohydrates trigger more hunger or does that kind of throw off your intuition? So a bit of both. So carbohydrates um, give you an insulin spike. So when your insulin levels go up, then you kind of get a bit hungrier. I've got a condition called polycystic ovarian syndrome, which means that I'm not very sensitive to the insulin that my body produces. And so the more carbohydrates I have, the kind of more carbohydrates I want. So if I'm kind of careful with my carbs, then I can manage my appetite a bit better. And that's kind of the same for lots of different people. Lots of people for lots of reasons find that carbs are the kind of once I pop, I can't stop type situation. So those high protein snacks and higher protein meals can help you with your appetite regulation generally. Yeah. You know, I found the same thing. And, uh, but also found that if I mix my carbs with a lot of fiber, so say like I have like oatmeal and quinoa, uh, for breakfast, uh, with some banana, if there's enough fiber in there, then it, it kind of mitigates my carb cravings. Yeah, um, totally. So those slow release, that then creates kind of slow release um, situation with the carbohydrates that then keep just does genuinely keep you fuller for longer. So fiber is a really great way of improving satiety. Is there a such thing as too much fiber? Is there is there a tipping point uh, where, where you, you just run into the bathroom too often or, or is it, or could it where it could have disastrous consequences? So if you're a healthy adult and you're eating lots of other foods, then everything's kind of generally fine as long as you're not getting symptoms that cause you problems. So it's all very individual. Um, but in children and more vulnerable populations, fiber can drag, too much fiber can drag some of the important nutrients out of your digestive system. So there was a sort of trend, particularly in the UK, I think, to feed young children lots of bran to try and keep their bowels regular, but actually it was making them anemic because some of the fibre was binding with some of the uh, some of the iron and not allowing them to absorb it properly. 
So we do have to be a little bit careful in children and people who are particularly sort of sensitive to anemia and things like that. But ultimately, for most people, it's fibre to tolerance. So if it's not causing you problems, then go for it. I love that. That brings me, you brought up anemia. I have, I have some friends who are going through menopause and, and um, uh, it seems that like for some people, menopause uh, makes them a bit more anemic or gives them anemic like symptoms. Uh, should they get like their hormones checked? So, yeah, it depends on what's going on and what stage of menopause you're at. So some women, particularly at the beginning of menopause, might have some really long, very heavy periods or very erratic bleeding. And that might mean that they can develop anemia just purely because of the blood loss. Um, Most women will find that they're less like as, as menopause goes on and their periods stop. Most women will find that they are less likely to be anemic in the future. But through that process, it can be difficult and Sometimes identifying that anemia is difficult because often some of the other symptoms of menopause can mask themselves or symptoms of anemia really can mask themselves as just general menopausal symptoms like um, often women feel a bit more anxious, they might feel very tired, they might feel that they they can sleep as much as they want to and they just still never feel like they've had a good night's rest and some of those things kind of overlap with anemia. So definitely worth going to see your doctor getting those things checked out and getting hormone levels and also nutrients, micronutrients like iron, but also vitamin B12 and some of these other things checked. Uh, talking about B12, are, are there, um, is there a better way to take it? Uh, like a sublingual pills? Because uh, there are a lot of vegans out there and they always say, well, if I'm vegan, I got to get my B12 in. Is it, is it only through meat and dairy that we get into B12? So you can get it from meat and dairy and from um, fortified foods. So lots of vegan products will have vitamin B12 added to them. The problem with that is that you need to make sure that you're getting them regularly through the day. So we actually need quite a lot of vitamin B12 to meet our needs. Um, And the interesting thing about B12 is that your stores deplete very slowly. So it might be for the first kind of six months of your vegan diet, you feel amazing. And then suddenly things kind of taper off a little bit. And so it's really important that you make sure you're getting plenty of uh, foods that are fortified with vitamin B12. So I've had B12 added if you're a vegan. But supplementation is great to ensure that it's like a safety net for everybody. So a good quality vitamin B12 supplement can be really useful for all vegans. And I'd recommend it to all vegan clients that I work with just to make sure that they've got that, that added into their diet. Completely fine to take it as a mouth spray. Some people find better compliance with a mouth spray just because you can put it next to your toothbrush and just do it after you brush your teeth and get on with your day. Um, and some people just don't really like taking tablets, so that might work particularly well for some people. But it all depends on, you, you know, if you have to take other vitamins as well, it's worth trying to get it all in one multivitamin rather than having to take lots of different pills. I, I like that you say get on. I realize that's a very uh, Eng- English way of, of saying things. I'm going to add that to my vocab. What did I say? When, when you said uh, to get on with your day. And I realize oh, okay. that's not that's uh, uh, like like get on with it. Like that's not a very American <laughs> thing to say. And, but I, I like it. I, I realize I've, I've heard it enough times to where it's something uh, amusing to me about that. Just just get on with it, you know, uh, or carry on uh, that kind of thing. I, I like that. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna add that in. Uh, speaking of dairy, it, it, you know, I was talking to my sister because she's a she's a vegan, and we were talking about dairy, and and it, it seems to be such a um, uh, split decision on is it good for you? Is it bad for you? The the studies that are showing that we should not uh, consume dairy. What what is that based on? What what are we looking at here? What's the truth here? What's going on? 
So there's very little research that suggests that dairy is bad for us. The kind of movement into dairy being demonized, if you like, came from a sort of uh came from the wellness movement. It came from documentaries like Cowspiracy and What the Health. Before that, we were generally fairly uh, tuned into dairy being positive for us. So since then, science and researchers have had to really kind of uh, work to defending dairy in the most part. But of course, there has been lots of work looking at the the negatives and positives of it because there's public interest and, and where there's public interest, we should you know, we should examine things. It's important that we do as researchers and as nutrition professionals. Um, so there are differences in the UK dairy, sorry, UK dairy practices and in, in, in the EU, so the European Union versus the US. Um, in the UK, we're protected from some of the things that are slightly different in the US. So we're protected from things like hormone use. Uh, we're protected from things like antibiotic use in a different way to what's going on in the US. So dairy farming in the UK is slightly less intensive um, and maybe there's less of the things that people worry about getting into the food chain. So sort of as a starting point, I think it's important to acknowledge those farming differences which have an impact on the pros and cons, let's say, of including milk, particularly in your diet. From a nutrition perspective, uh, from purely nutrition perspective, you can't really argue with the science that supports dairy being the best source of nutrients for your bones, for your body. Um, dairy contains this kind of matrix of really, really useful nutrients that we can't get easily from other parts of our diet. So um, can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry, my friends are calling me and I need to just, uh, <laughs> let me just start again. Um, if I start from... Well, you, we were saying, really get... you were saying that we, we, you know, in terms of pound for pound nutrient density, milk uh, is is it. Like, you just can't be arguing when you, when, especially when we're comparing it to like almond milk, oat milk, uh, rice milk. Yeah, absolutely. So dairy contains all of these nutrients that are really important for us as humans and are also really important in terms of us not being able to easily replace them from other sources, particularly when we think about kind of a typical Western diet. So things like iodine, vitamin D, vitamin B12 we talked about already, also the sort of protein matrix in dairy helps us to absorb things like um, the calcium within it. And the fats of the protein help us with that kind of absorption of those nutrients and promoting bone health and things like that. So ultimately taking dairy out is, is a decision that people need to make uh, for themselves as individuals about an ethical decision um, and something about the sort of farming practices that they feel comfortable with as opposed to it being a nutritional decision. Because nutritionally, there's no comparison. Dairy is much, much better, far superior than any of the plant milks you can buy. Now, when we talk about dairy and we get into like the yogurts and the kefirs and the, there's, there's also like the raw milk versus like regular milk. Should we be drinking raw milk? I'm sure to answer no. Um, we, milk is pasteurized for a reason. It's pasteurized to protect us. Um, raw milk may contain some um, better sort of some different probiotic bacteria, so bacteria that are good for us. But it's also very likely to contain pathogenic bacteria, so very dangerous bacteria that lots of people just really can't afford to um, get into their digestive system because it puts us all at risk. So ultimately, raw milk is a bad idea for almost everybody. I love that. I love that. Um, 
what else did I want to get into? Oh, okay. So let's be more topical here. We're talking about the Rona right now, and and uh, there's a lot of articles being posted about foods to fight COVID and and the the COVID diet. Uh, is, is there a specific diet of certain foods we should be eating to fight the Rona? <laughs> so um, the. Unfortunately, despite there being lots and lots of people who will try and sell you lots of products and services and, you know, in this country, IV vitamin drips and all sorts to try and help you to boost your immune system, there's really nothing that you can do kind of acutely to, to make a difference. So ultimately, your immune system is, is number one, genetically predetermined and determined by all of the pathogens that you've been exposed to through your whole life. Um, and number two, it's kind of depends on you having a regular daily intake of good quality nutrients that make up the functioning cells and the functioning bits of your immune system. So taking mega doses of anything, vitamin C, zinc, whatever else you've seen kind of promoted that might um, cure or prevent coronavirus, there's no evidence for any of those things. In this country, people are being sued for marketing things as a coronavirus prevention or treatment because there just really isn't anything that will work. And actually putting mega doses, so non-physiological doses, doses that you'd never find in nature, those high doses of anything into your body is putting your body under extra stress. You're asking your body to work much harder. And in order for our immune system to be as well functioning as possible, it needs a regular input of nutrients, so loads of fruits and vegetables that can help to raise the, the sort of circulating levels of things like vitamin C in a natural way. It wants lots of good quality protein. So all of the cells that you need to launch an immune reaction are made up from protein and other micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. So we need this kind of regular drip feed of good quality nutrition every single day. Plus we need plenty of sleep and rest we need to avoid things like alcohol and smoking and these sorts of things that suppress our immune system. And we need some general regular exercise and really uh, aggressive exercise. Like there's a big trend toward HIIT training and things like that. Just gentle exercise that your body would naturally be doing if we were sort of still in a, in a kind of um, evolving state. So if we were walking around trying to find food or if we were lifting things and moving our bodies around, those are the things that your body needs every day for your immune system to function as well as possible. If you're under a lot of stress and you feel very stressed, your body's working really hard to launch a, a cortisol, a fight or flight reaction all the time. And that's taking away from its capability of, of launching good immune responses. So your fight or flight hormones suppress your immune system in some ways and boost it in other ways. And it just becomes this very complicated physiological picture. What your immune system needs to function at its best is good quality nutrition rest, low stress levels, and some movement. You know, I, I love that because so, so many people are jumping around and jumping on boxes and doing this CrossFit. So I, I'm, it sounds like you're anti-CrossFit. I'm for that. I'm, I'm just putting words in your mouth. I'm sorry. Um. <laughs> we used to, I think CrossFit comes with this kind of paleo diet thing as well. And I used to joke with a physiotherapist friend of mine. We used to work from the same clinic, which is across the road from a CrossFit gym. And she would do the kind of CrossFit rehab and I would do the paleo rehab and we'd kind of get these people back to normal functioning. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up, you know, the, the whole gentle exercise because it's true when, when I travel and especially like in Asia, it's like all these Asians are living to be a thousand years old and all they do is walk everywhere and, and do like slow motion kung fu in the park. 
uh, Tai Chi. I'm sure they're, they're tired of hearing it called slow motion kung fu. But um, <laughs> but but that also brings me to to yoga. I mean, we as Americans, we we tend to want to like you know up the ante on everything, and 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 so of uh, of course hot yoga was a big thing here. Should we be doing yoga in a thousand degree uh, you know rooms? I mean, the yoga, that yoga practice, there's some brilliant documentaries about the guy who started that yoga practice and how completely unethical he was in the way that he went about doing things. Like, not saying he doesn't have some brilliance, but there's also some horrendous stuff that went on around that. And I think we do like to push all these things to an extreme. You know, with our nutrition, we like to be really polarized. And whereas yoga might start as something that helps us to feel better and that we're just doing it to move our bodies in a healthful way, we always kind of want to be still burning loads of calories and still doing this and still pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And actually there are plenty of things you can do for your body that aren't about burning calories, that aren't about changing your physical appearance that are much more to do with you being stiller, being healthier and being happier in yourself. And I think where yoga practice becomes like a competition or uh, feeding your ego or someone else's ego, you've kind of lost the point of it a little bit in my opinion. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you, you shared that with us. Uh, it's so hard to be in those yoga classes and not get competitive a little bit. Um, but it, there is, I understand why people go because you do feel, I do feel amazing afterwards. And mm. I, I sleep like a baby and my, my limbs feel 10 times better, but also have found that uh, it's not sustainable for me. Like it feels good for a few days and then, uh, and then I regress back uh, to the, to the mean or the norm or whatever. So, uh, I'm all about doing things that are sustainable. Speaking of which, you know, we talked about foods to fight the COVID and, uh, exercise and lifestyle. Uh, you know, there was that book, the blue zone and it, and it talked about foods to help people that were, um, uh, the, the, the way that people ate in these blue zones where people were living, uh, on, you know, to a hundred, uh, uh, it had high percentage of centenarians and things like that. What what did that find and, and what can we learn from that? So with blue zones, so we're looking at longevity and there's this sort of um, thing in Western culture now, there's a real trend towards pushing for longevity of life. So living as long as you can. And whilst we all want to live long, healthy lives, I'm not sure that we just want our bodies to continue to live on indefinitely if, if we're not functioning mentally or physically as well as we would like to. So I think we need to sort of differentiate between, um, you know, longevity in terms of healthy years of longevity versus just living forever, which to me doesn't sound like a particularly pleasant way to, to be. What we know about the blue zones is that it's a combination of all of the factors that go into their lifestyle that support them living for, for these extended years. And yes, there is uh, a lot of good quality nutrition, food that's grown locally near to where, you know, or, or reared locally near to where they are consuming it. Often they are taking an active part in harvesting the food and growing food themselves. And that seems to be significant, um, probably significant because of the physical exertion that goes into continually harvesting, growing um, and processing food, like grinding flour and things like that. So there's these physical things that go alongside the nutritional elements of it that are very important. 
We also know that people who live in blue zones have uh, a diet that's largely based on plants with meat and fish uh, and other proteins added in. There's often dairy included, but not always. It is this matrix of their nutrition that comes, again, largely from local foods, foods growing near them, foods that are whole foods. There's very little processed food. And then there's all the other things that go into that lifestyle. And one of the main things that seems to be like the key common theme through all of the people who live in the blue zones is actually connection and feeling like a valued member of the community, even until they are, you know, over 100 years old. So it's this sort of ability to connect with people. People go to them for advice. People show them value. People um, want them in their homes and want to support them and love them. And I think it's those things. So it's the physical activity, good quality nutrition and connection and community that is the real key to everything. And whenever as humans we lose any one of those things, and I think this kind of situation with coronavirus has taught us a lot about the connection side of things, whenever we lose sight of any one of those things, that's when we start to fail. That's when our health starts to fail. That's when we start to sort of give up. And we must focus on that connection, the nutrition and the movement in order for us to be as well and for, for that longevity. Yeah, I, I read so much research that talks about, uh, you know, or especially like people, let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, my friend, I had a friend who had COVID and, uh, and he went in and the main thing that he talked about was the fact that his family wasn't able to visit him. And, and when I hear stories about people who have COVID and being in a hospital, that's the thing that they talk about the most is like how, how lonely it is and, and, and being in a hospital and not having the loved ones around you. Nobody's talking about accomplishments or achievements or the things that they've done or the things they want to get done. They talk about the wanting to have uh, their community around them, their friends around them, their fa- family around them. So uh, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned from that at the end of the day when, when we're laying there and are, and are taking our last exhales, uh, you know, we want to, we want to be surrounded by people who uh, we feel connected to and loved by. Um, I think that we often with our pursuit of some of these wellness things that we're talking about. So sometimes in our pursuit of like achieving the perfect aesthetic in inverted commas or um, achieving longevity we can sometimes disconnect ourselves from people around us who perhaps um, aren't part of that pursuit. So I know lots of partners of people who um, would who wish their partner was at home to eat dinner with them and their kids, but instead they're in the gym, and they would make a different choice. Like you know, that's uh, people who are fasting and therefore never going out for dinner with their friends. We've we've kind of we need to refocus that because ultimately your your mental and physical health comes from farm we need to get that balance right i don't really know how to phrase it but your overall health and well-being comes from very many more things than just your physical aesthetic or one focused part of it we need to make sure that we get the balance right for everybody and for ourselves yeah you know uh, uh to backtrack a little bit we're talking about fighting off the rona uh there's also like when people catch a cold there's so many cold remedies i remember i had a cold for like a month uh a few years ago and I was just taking the echinacea, the elderberry extract, uh, all this vitamin C. Is it do the same rules apply for for fighting the cold once you have it as it does for COVID? Um, and, and are there is it do we need to show up on vitamin C as typically uh, discussed? So your immune system does use more vitamin C, so you turns over more vitamin C when you have a cold or when you have the flu. So 
your immune cells that are required. So when you, when you have a virus that meets your immune system, you need to create new cells. And vitamin C becomes an important part of those new cells, an important part of how those cells move through your body and communicate with each other and the other parts of your body. So when you have a cold or you have any kind of viral illness or any illness at all, you do have a higher turnover of vitamin C, so you do need more of it. And there is some interesting research showing that if people um, take vitamin C when they have a cold, the life of the cold shortens a little bit. So you can reduce how long the cold lasts for if you take vitamin C. I think people, what's really important that I say now from a professional perspective, I have to say none of that research has been done for COVID-19. We don't know. There's no answers. The research hasn't been done. We're currently focusing on people not dying, and that's what we're doing. So we don't know if that applies also to COVID-19. On the same, in the same sentence, it's important to recognise that we're not talking about mega doses of vitamin C. If you get a bit of a cold taking huge doses of vitamin C, you'll put your body under extra pressure to get rid of it, to process it and get rid of it. So actually, the only additional vitamin C you might need is the equivalent of like a small glass of orange juice or an extra orange or these kind of tiny little physiological steps that we can take, which actually just are things that we could find from our everyday food. So we don't need to take those mega things. We don't need to you know, spend your money in the vegetable aisle, not in the pharmacy aisle. Like <laughs> eat, drink your fruit, drink some fruit juice if you have a cold. Um, I know that in lots of cultures, there's sort of um, practices around having honey and lemon or having ginger and things like that. Those things are kind of actually really helpful if you have a cold. So just thinking about trying to do things in a bit more of a natural way rather than focusing on taking tablets or taking big doses of things. I love that. Speaking of which, you know, my mom's always preached about fish oil and you got to have your fish oil. And I remember drinking castor oil as a kid and it was so horrendous. Uh, but but she swears that's why she was able to birth me in like five minutes, although I was 10 pounds, three ounces. <laughs> so she was like, you just slid right out of there. I was like, all right. Um, but but in terms of uh, the, the fish oil push and, you know, Dr. Oz is recently talking about krill oil. Uh, what type of oil should we be taking in or, or do we even need to be taking uh, fish oil for our omega threes? So um, fish oils and omega-3s are really, really important part of our physiological function. So our best physiological function comes from making sure that we get plenty of these omega-3 fatty acids every day. They're what we call essential fatty acids, which means that your body can't synthesize them from other things. So we have to make sure we get them from either fish oil or algae oil. Your body can make um, some of these things. So you can, there are sort of plant sources in terms of things like seeds and nuts, but ultimately your body can only construct the right types of fats over out of those ones in very small amounts. So for the vast majority of people, you do need to make sure you're either getting two portions of oily fish a week or taking a supplement. And that supplement could be algae oil, or it could be an omega-3 fish body oil supplement. That's fine. When I was a kid, my mum used to shove uh, cod liver oil down us and it was flavored with orange and it scarred me forever. <laughs> it was disgusting. Um, but yeah, those essential fatty acids are really important, really important for our heart function, for something called heart rate variability. So how well your heart responds when you ask your body to do something like walk up a flight of stairs, for example. 
Um, but also your brain is made up of, in, in a sort of ideal situation, your brain is made up of 25, 25% of your brain is made up from something called DHA, one of these omega-3 fatty acids. And not getting enough DHA, so this omega-3 fatty acid in your diet, is a bit like taking 25% of the bricks of your house out and replacing it with polystyrene. It kind of functions the same, but it's not protected in the same way. It's not as robust. And we can see changes in people's brains um, as a result of their diet from the age of 30. So predictive changes of things like Alzheimer's and that sort of thing from a really young age. And a lot of that is to do with the balance of omega-3 fatty acids in our diet. Wow. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up and and uh, especially about the fish oil and uh, the algae oil, because uh, I, I do have so many uh, friends and listeners who, who are vegetarian, so they'll be glad to know that they can get that algae oil and don't have to dip into the, the fish oil. Speaking of uh, yeah, vegans sure. and vegetarians, um, uh, what say you about the this this proliferation of of uh, Beyond Burger and these uh, uh, fake uh, meats that that exist the, the the soy and tofu burgers that are running amok in grocery stores. <laughs> Well, you've made your opinion pretty clear. There. I, I, <laughs> I just don't believe in fake anything. Like, you know, I had substitute teachers. They were, they were never as good as the real teachers. So <laughs> I don't understand why we're, we're jumping on board with substitute meats. Like, you know, anyway, I'm going to sure. let the expert talk. <laughs> so the important thing to remember with substitute, like meat substitutes, is you have to consider your reasons for your lifestyle choices. So if you're a vegan for environmental reasons, then it's important to consider the fact that any of these processed you know, meat alternatives have been through factories, they've been on lorries, they've had this kind of long journey to turn into whatever they are. And ultimately, um, that is going to have a much bigger carbon footprint than a different choice. For example, organic or farmed salmon or some organic free-range eggs, right? So the environmental impact of organic free-range eggs versus um, a processed vegan burger, is it, it, you can't compare the two, right? So obviously the eggs are going to have a much lower environmental impact. Um, if you're a vegan for animal rights reasons, then in my opinion, have whatever processed food you want. All of us meat eaters have processed food coming out of our ears. We have options you know, everywhere we go. If you're vegan for animal welfare reasons, cool. Like enjoy your enjoy your processed products if that's what you choose to do. Um, just I would put a caution in there around if you choose to buy them from fast food outlets that have terrible animal practices and don't look after animals well, then maybe you want to consider the sort of the the root uh, where they come from and who the manufacturers are. And there are certainly in the UK and I'm sure in the US some really brilliant vegan companies coming through that are founded by vegans. And you just know that their ethical practices around animal welfare are really strong. So try to buy from the vegan community if it's for animal welfare reasons. Um, if you're doing it for nutritional reasons, if you're a vegan for nutritional reasons, I should say, then clearly a highly processed food is not going to be a good choice for you. All of the processed vegan products contain way more additives, way more emulsifiers and stabilizers, lots more palm oil than lots of the like meat alternatives or the meat foods that you might normally eat. So just being really conscious of your motivations and your reasons for those choices, I think that's where we need to kind of get those messages in around ultra-processed foods, ultra-processed vegan foods, 
Why are you doing it? What's your motivation behind it? Anyone is allowed a treat. Like everyone's allowed foods that are celebratory foods and foods that we, you know, eat for joy. Not every food is just for nutrition. Uh, and as long as you're including them in a way that's healthful and is the right thing for you from a kind of macro uh, perspective, then I think, it, you know, they're fine as long as, uh, as long as it's fine for you as an individual. Does that make sense? Like, like meat eaters have millions of choices of terrible ultra processed food and we haven't batted an eyelid at it for ages it's just that now we have these new ultra processed foods that are targeted to a new market people are getting a bit up in arms about it and actually everyone's allowed to have choice right sophie's uh, so so valuable and I, i'm glad that you are um you know not you know me I, i've clearly picked one side of the fence but you you've kind of given us a 360 perspective so that the listeners can make their own decision um, and, and dig in deeper as to why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and, and, you know, along the lines of substitute meats, you know, uh, uh, it also made me think about substitute, these substitute milks, the, the almond milk, the oat milk, the rice milk, the soy milk. What, what say ye about these? I don't know why I keep calling you ye. Why? What say ye? I, I just, <laughs> I just finished r- uh, reading Moby Dick also. So I'm like, ah, you know, like it's. <laughs> That's it. That's all it is. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they're fine. They're just not good nutritionally. As in, like, they're, they're not going to do any harm, but they're not doing you any good either. So um because everything in them is so watered down say take oat milk as an example eating oats oats are really good for you very 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 watered down oats just don't really give you anything good almonds are really good for you eating something that's actually drinking something that's actually two percent almond is not the same same with all the nut milks um you know you can get hemp milk now which is you know there's nobody was pretending there was any good nutrition in hemp until now I guess um so it's a kind of it's a funny time I think the key with uh, plant-based milk alternatives is not to use them as use them physically as a replacement for milk but don't think of them as a nutritional equivalent so look at fortification make sure they've got things added that you would normally get from milk particularly calcium give them a good shake before you use them so that calcium comes up to the top and you're not waiting till the bottom to get any calcium at all from them um, and just remember that, you know, they're not a nutritional equivalent. They're not doing any good. You're not getting any major health benefits from them, but they're a little bit innate. They're not doing any harm. It's kind of fine. There's so many uh, parents who listen in and have kids and, um, you know, they're saying like, well, my kids want, when I was a kid, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking about vegetables and Brussels sprouts. Is there, is there a way that parents can talk to their kids to encourage them to, to eat their Brussels sprouts or to eat healthier options? Um, so I guess it depends on the age of the children. There's so much noise about nutrition now in in, in the world. And um, I work with, so I do some outreach work with the boxing gym that I train at and we, we look after some um, harder to reach kids during the summer holidays and things. Uh, and you know kids are worried about nutrition i've got kids like seven-year-old kids asking me if they're going to get fat if they eat fruit like this is this is horrible we're in a horrible situation so we need to be very gentle with how we talk to kids about nutrition because we don't want them to worry about it but equally we want them to be invested and understand why and i guess the key thing around communicating with children about food is helping them to understand why you want them to eat it why is it good for you what does it do 
try to get them to think about it in like a way that makes them excited. So the carrots do genuinely help you see in the dark. Talk to them about that. Talk to them about why you're asking them to eat certain foods. And generally, kids can get a bit more on board with it. The key thing with kids is to remember that we will go, kids go through phases. One week they will eat the foods and the next week they won't eat the foods. And the more pressure we put on kids and the more we kind of bully them into trying to eat these foods, the the less likely they're going to feel comfortable with them. And kids are super resilient and kids are pretty good at kind of finding what they need from their diet as long as we don't constantly put processed food and burgers and things like that in front of them because they can't resist them. Ultimately, if we offer them balanced meals, They'll eat balanced meals. It's so true. And, and, and we also find that as we are eating more nutrient-dense options, because a, a lot of parents also will uh, bring up the fact that their kids want to eat snacky foods, but it's when we eat more nutrient-dense options that it, it can curb uh, those cravings. Can our cravings, like sugar cravings, salt cravings, uh, can it tell us anything uh, about... Uh, What's really going on? Does that make sense? Meaning like mm-hmm. if I have a sugar craving, uh, does that mean like I'm low on a certain vitamin or that I'm angry or like what, what can what can our cravings tell us? So unfortunately, there's been lots of work done over the years to try and uh, link these things together and try and suggest that actually we're quite good. Like the, the people have tried to suggest that we are good at understanding what our body needs and therefore craving a food. But of course, we don't eat single nutrients. We eat you know, a whole food, which contains lots of different things. So it might be that when you've done a really heavy workout or it's been really a hot day, you might crave something salty and your brain might think, OK, I know that potato chips are really salty and I'm gonna, that's what I'm craving. That's what I really want. But then you get all the other things as well. So it's not that there's anything good in the potato chips that you're craving. It's the salt. And you could get that salt from adding some salt to your salad, for example. With sugar, there's a slightly more complex picture in that we know that when we are stressed or when we're tired, our bodies really, really want extra energy. And when we do have those higher energy foods, the reward center in our brain lights up even more if we're stressed and tired. So your body is telling you when you're stressed and tired that eating high energy, high sugar foods is good. It's the positive thing. It wants you to do it more. And part of that is because cortisol, the stress reaction, so when we are stressed, we launch this whole stress response That response is a fight or flight response. Your body is gearing you up to either run away from something or fight something. And of course, particularly at the moment, what we actually need to kind of fight the stress that we're under is to stay in our homes and concentrate on our work. And the things that we're mainly stressed about are like our boss emailing us or random things that are coming. There's nothing to do with anything that's going to come and chase us. So we have to run or anything that's going to come and fight us. Generally, that's not what's going on. But your body tells you that's what might happen. And so it tells you to go and fuel up for that stress response. It tells you to go and fuel your body up to fight or run. And sugar and high energy foods are the things that you'll want in that moment. Those are the things that you'll be drawn to. Those are the things that you particularly want. And when you do have them, your brain tells you, excellent, do that more. And so what you really need to do in that moment is think about calming your stress reaction. So if you can lower that cortisol level, we can curb that craving. So by doing some stretching, doing some breathing work, doing some meditation, calling a friend, having a laugh, watching some videos that you find funny, anything that kind of lowers your stress hormones, creates this sort of space that feels safer and happier and more peaceful for you, that can help you to get on top of that craving. 
And do you know what? Sometimes the only thing that will work is eating some cake and that's okay as long as you don't then beat yourself up about it and get even more stressed and build that stress reaction again. I love that you said sometimes cake is good. That's all I needed to hear. That's that's really, that, that was the green light I needed. I'm, I'm going to keep that on the loop. You know, sometimes cake is good. <laughs> You're right because you, us, you know, trying to fight it and, 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 and trying to resist it just it makes that elephant a little bit bigger in the room, you know? So it, it's you. better that you go ahead and have a little dibble dabble instead of, instead of trying to fight it. And then, you know, uh, just, I, I, cause that's what, that's what I've done is I'll have a little dibble dabble and then I'll, I'll think about my next day and I go, okay, how can I handle my stress? Uh, or, you know, be more calm the following day so that, uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not here. I, it kind of like, you know, Today is lost or, you know, but also we'll find that um, after I've eaten a cake or, or given into temptation, that the thing that I really w- needed to do, I'll do after. So like I, I think last night, like I had I forgot what I ate, but but I, I kind of just was like standing in the kitchen stuff in my face. And then I went and stretched and I felt so good after the stretch. And I was like, oh. That's what I really wanted to do was was just stretch and release some of the the tension out of my body. So I often find that after I dibble dabbled, uh, I will go naturally to the thing that I needed to do, and then just trying to keep track of that for future yeah. use. And part of that is because eating has calmed that stress response. So you've kind of calmed the initial phase of it. Now you can go into doing the thing that you really needed to do. Now you can go into the productive thing. If you can, try and switch that around. And sometimes you may still go and have cake afterwards, even if it means that you choose a healthier snack, so you have some nuts. But if you still really want the cake, like at least you've made a good decision, you've had some good nutrients and you've made a choice, right? So if we can just change that response around and the, the more you do the thing that you actually need to do, like the stretching or the breathing or calling your friend or whatever, the easier your brain connects that as being the thing that you want rather than the cake. Does that make sense? So oh, yeah. we can train, train our brains to want that thing first and to want that thing when we feel a particular way. It's just that so often we've trained our brains to go for the food. We know it works. It works every time. It works a treat. It's just that so often we then enter that negative cycle where actually we feel bad about eating it and we think that we're awful. And that whole language around food is really, really unhelpful. I think that the key is or a lot of important stuff around that is to unpack our thoughts and feelings about labeling food as good and bad. If I'm good, it means I'm never eating these foods versus if I'm bad, I'm eating these foods or I'm binging or whatever that that terminology is that we use. If you can talk to yourself like a kind parent, rather than like the mean girl at school or a high school bully, you'll be in a much better position. So if I say to myself, do you know what? You can have some cake, just do some stretching first, go out for a quick walk. When you come back, you can have a piece of cake. That's fine. Versus if you eat that cake, you are terrible. You are bad. You are going to be fat forever. You're an awful person. You should be ashamed of yourself. Look at what you've done. Look at how you've let yourself go there's some you might still eat the cake in both scenarios but which scenario is better for you which scenario is better for your head which scenario is better for your body you know there's so much that you can do if you just talk to yourself kindly especially around food i feel like you you, you've been in my head a few times uh with that talk (laughs) (laughs) 
feel the same as everybody else. Yeah, special Leo. <laughs> oh, damn it. Are you serious? My teacher told me I was. Um, <laughs> when, you know, and, and I love that you said, uh, you know, this, this talk around binge eating and uh, should we even eliminate the word emotional eating? Is that, should we rephrase that in some type of way? I mean, we, I think talking about emotional eating, I think it's a, it's a truth. Like it's what we do. It's normal. It's a normal part of our everyday life. I think that the problem is when we talk about trying to eliminate or stop emotional eating, um, because actually we're all going to do it. You know, it, it happens to us all. It's sort of an inevitable product of our physiology like we were talking about earlier, but also our environment. So sometimes it's inevitable that you're going to find yourself a stressed and tired person in a grocery store with all of this choice around you and the things that your body is pushing you to go and, and eat. Um, and those situations are difficult. There's going to be plenty of times where you have good intentions first thing in the morning about what you're going to eat in the restaurant when you get there with your friends. But when you arrive in the restaurant, you have a menu in front of you and you're tired and you're stressed because it's the end of the day, you make a different choice to what you might have intended to make. I think eliminating or talking about trying to eliminate emotional eating is unhelpful. Um, I think we should probably try and work in this country. We use comfort eating quite a lot, which I'm not sure is particularly helpful terminology. Um, but, you know, eating is an emotional thing. And I think we need to kind of recognize that and talk about it because otherwise it's like we're back to kind of 10 years ago where I just gave you a diet plan and send you on your way, which you'll never follow because you're a normal human being with emotions and feelings and, and a life. Yeah, because, I mean, when my mom cooked for me, I mean, she it would have been an insult for her to cook and then look at my face to see my response and not be emotional about if I just gave it a stone cold, stoic Marcus Aurelius face, she would not have been, you know, she's cooking to elicit an emotion from you. And, oh, this is amazing. This is great. And and when we think about the energy around food, it's it should be communal and festive and fun and and it should be like emotional and lively and et cetera et cetera so uh hmm. you know when i when i think about like italians and you know especially you know in europe it's like you, you know you're you're eating for like two three hours and, it, and it's a and it's a it's a, an experience it's a it's a it's festive it's a feast it's not just you know i got to get uh you know my carbs and calories is not like a it's not a numbers game you know yeah, food is joy. I think that one of the problems that we have with Western culture is that we take the joy out of food. We sit in our cars and eat burgers. We eat huge amounts of calories in our cars where there's no joy, where there's no, you know, it's this mindless eating that's a massive issue for a lot of people. And actually, if we were enjoying that food with our families, while we were laughing, while we were getting that community stuff, while we were getting all the good things as well, then we would perhaps modify our calorie intake somewhat, or our energy intake somewhat, because actually we're getting loads of really positive stimulus all the time through that experience versus the experience that feels quite dark and isolated where you maybe sit in your car and eat alone uh, and don't feel that connection and you're not really registering the energy and you're not getting any other positive stimulus apart from the, what's coming from your food. Yeah, I mean, we're all just trying to feel good, right? And, and sometimes we use food to do that. Uh, I read somewhere that, 95% of our serotonin that feel good drug is, is produced in our, in our gut. Um, and it, it's based on like some of the foods that we eat. Is that, is that a, a true statement or how should we be looking at the serotonin that we're all trying yeah, to get? Yeah. So I've got, 
Yeah, that contains loads of serotonin and produces loads of serotonin and has lots of receptors for serotonin. We're not sure at the moment how that communicates with our brains and how our brain kind of processes that and whether people who have lots of serotonin in their gut necessarily have lots of serotonin in their brain. Like we're still trying to unpack all of that scientifically and understand it. But definitely there's a connection. We'd be foolish to think that there wasn't a connection there when we have studied and and we can see all this stuff going on. And, you know, historically, um, and even it built into our language, we had a much better connection with our gut. So we talk about our gut feeling and our gut instincts and all these kinds of things. We've got butterflies in our stomach. We have all of these this language around our stomachs and how emotional we come, like how emotions come from there. And there's a sort of we know about the gut brain axis and how our gut is talking to our brain all the time through lots of different mechanisms and lots of different means. But we've only really just in the last say let's say 10 years connected back in with that from a scientific perspective and been able to study it and there's lots of different mechanisms through which your gut might be interacting with your brain one of the things that I learned recently which I thought was fascinating is that when you have a sugar-free soda your taste receptors in your mouth know that it's sugary and it tell well thinks it's going to be sugary and tells your pancreas to release insulin in response to it So even though there's no calories, even though there's no real sugar, your taste receptors are telling your pancreas to do stuff. Our brains, our bodies are fully connected all the time and are telling us, giving us messages. So in order to look after your gut, you need to make sure that you're feeding it plenty of fiber and the microbiome. So those trillions of bacteria that live in your colon, like the last part of your gut, they like plant fiber and they like variety of plant fiber. So the healthiest people in the world, even in the blue zones, again, they have the biggest microbiome diversity that we see. Uh, And diversity of your microbiome is what you're looking for. And it's helpful to remember that by feeding lots of diverse foods, you're going to get diversity. If you only feed a few different foods, you're not going to get the same level of diversity. Even if that means that you need to switch up your meal prep, where for five days you eat chicken and broccoli and sweet potato every day because someone's told you that's healthy. What your microbiome wants from you is variety of food. Every day, lots of variety, lots of different fruits and vegetables, all mixed in, lots of different nuts and seeds and these whole foods. Plant fiber variety is the key to having a really diverse microbiome. And having a really diverse microbiome is the key to general health, including good mental health. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the reasons why I love going to a farmer's market is because you're you're getting in uh, what's seasonal for the most part. And, and that way it takes the guesswork out of, am I diversifying my gut biome? Because they're bringing in to you whatever's being grown at this time of year, the, the fruits, the vegetables, et cetera, et cetera. So, it doesn't, it, so it, it, the diversity could be a seasonal diversity. It doesn't have to be a daily diversity necessarily, correct? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you're switching it up regularly and you're not overly reliant on the same foods over and over again. That, that diversity can come seasonally, weekly, monthly. Your gut doesn't mind as long as it's all getting fed sometimes and some of the good stuff. I love that. Um, speaking of which, I, I want to get into uh, some people find it so hard to quit soda. You, you were talking about um, uh, aspartame and, and, and sugar-free sodas. Uh, what are some steps people can take to quit soda or, or whatever food someone was trying to quit. I have somebody trying to quit bread, uh, but are there steps that people can take? What's the first step there? So the first thing I would say is to try and examine your reasons why. So what's your motivation? 
What do you stand to gain? What's on the other side of you not having that food? So let's focus on soda because quitting bread doesn't benefit you massively, but quitting soda may well have some health benefits, right? So if you think focus on why you want to do it and what you look like on the other side of that, how you would feel, how you'd behave, what would be different for you. And you can kind of tune into that person that's on the other side of the sort of leap that you need to make in order to get there. One of the things that I think we often do is, again, we label ourselves as good and bad. So I had one can of soda today, therefore I am bad. But if, you know, last week you were having 10 cans of soda a day or 10 bottles of soda a day, then you're really good that day, right? You've done really, really good work. And I think sometimes we need to process some of this, uh, particularly with um, things like soda. We need to process it in a way that you might if you were kind of quitting cigarettes and things like that. So try and cut down, first of all. Think of motivations. Try and cut down. Don't beat yourself up if you have a relapse and have some. Give yourself a permission to have it, say, at the weekends or to have some in the evening or to have one a day. Um, try not to feel too guilty about it. And just try to sort of focus on gently telling your brain that when you're thirsty or when this happens, you don't need soda, you need something else. What is it that you really need in that moment? Try and find other things to give yourself to distract you from that want of soda. So sometimes it's these external triggers and cues that make us want something. Uh, and in the past, we've always given into them, we've given that thing. Actually, now we need to try and find something else, something to replace the soda with. Maybe it's a glass of water with some cucumber or some mint in it or something like that. Something that's still nice and still gives you something that you're looking for, but it's a much healthier option. Yeah, because I, I, when I was a kid, I remember a lot of times when I drank soda, it was when I was watching TV or a movie and uh, or when I was just bored. It was just uh, something to do. I'd mix the soda in with ice cream and, and have myself a little root beer float. Um, and, and I find that, uh, you know, not to go back to emotional eating, but boredom uh, is so huge. And I find that most of the times when I'm having foods like soda or cake, uh, I'm watching TV. What is it about TV that uh, triggers for most of us uh, th that type of habit or behavior? So one of the issues I think that we don't necessarily recognize with TV is it's actually such a passive activity for our brains. Our brains want to be stimulated all the time. Our brains want stuff going on or it needs complete stillness. TV is like that no man's land in between the two where it's not quite interesting or engaging or occupying enough for our thoughts. That, it does, that our mind doesn't wonder, that our mind isn't thinking about wanting more stimulation, but it's not quite understimulating enough for us to fall asleep or rest quite a lot of the time. So ultimately, whenever you're watching TV, if you find yourself thinking about the fridge or thinking about the food or thinking about soda or whatever it is, if that's the time and that's the habit where that you've got into, think about doing something else that occupies your brain at the same time. So some people like to sew or knit. Some people like to do puzzles like Sudoku or some people like to play games on their phone at the same time. Whatever it is that kind of gives you that extra level of stimulation during that time will distract you from the fridge. And we could have a whole other conversation about whether that's healthy or not and how much TV time you should build into your schedule or think about having if you find that it's not really stimulating you and it's not really giving you what you need. But ultimately, it's about something about routine, something about thinking about um, occupying your mind and occupying your thoughts and just remembering that just TV just isn't very, is a very passive activity, particularly mentally. You know, what, what I found is um, a half hour of television is enough for me. Uh, once I, once I try to get into that hour, 
the, uh, anywhere between that half hour and hours is when all of a sudden I want to snack or like shows like I remember like when I was watching Game of Thrones that that show in Ozark and like those shows with those those high anxiety lots of action lots of drama <laughs> would trigger all of my cravings uh, even before I started watching it I'd be like ooh I'm gonna I'm gonna gr- I'm gonna watch TV but I'm gonna grab some ice cream or grab some Cheez Its um, but when I think about grabbing a book there's something very calming very soothing about knowing that I'm just gonna sit there and and read a book but uh but yeah watching tv for a half hour and then also i find taking notes i like to take notes on what i watch so there'll be like words or phrases or a piece of dialogue that i'm riveted by and uh and that kind of gives my brain something to do it's like you know to to be looking out for notes that i want to take on an episode and, and talk about with other people yeah i think it is that mindless tv watching that is such a ritual can become such a big part of families daily habit of individuals daily habits and I'm conscious that you know there are people who can't possibly imagine an evening without watching the tv but there are so many things that you can do that don't involve watching the tv even if it's going out for a walk even if it's doing some drawing could do some drawing whilst the tv's on if you want to eventually you'll migrate away from the tv and try and do it somewhere where you're peaceful there are lots of different things that you can do um, that can help you to have less tv time less of that passive kind of download of information or upload of information that, that you're probably not going to use and reading is such a great activity because it's much it's much more mentally uh it's stimulating your brain has to imagine the things that you're reading and process the words so that means that your brain is more occupied during that time as opposed to when we're watching tv where it's just a very passive you know activity yeah i think is i think boredom is one of those things that or everybody's talking about depression and anxiety but i, I feel like Boredom is the thing that we're, we're all trying to uh, fight against and, and protest. And, um, and, and I think that that's even led to this um, increase in ADHD um, uh, diagnoses, especially amongst children. Is there a nutritional link to ADHD or things where there's a, or maybe like a nutritional deprivation that could show up as ADHD in children? Yeah, so there's some great data um, that children who have ADHD-type symptoms benefit massively from dietary supplementation with some of these essential fatty acids that we talked about, so the omega-3s, but also in things like B vitamins. And I'm not saying that this is the cure and this would prevent it or anything like that, because there is obviously a diagnosable problem there. But ultimately, sometimes we can look at those root causes And we can improve things for families and for children without medications, using diet and using um, proper stimulation, routine, all of these kinds of things. Again, I'm really keen to make it very clear that this isn't the case for every child. And this isn't something that parents are doing wrong. There's no blame. It's just that as an adjunct to kind of general treatment for ADHD, there may be things that healthcare professionals can do to support you and your child uh, for their brains to work as, as well as they possibly can and for you all to have a nicer and more peaceful time um, raising your children and for them to be more successful in school and all that kind of stuff. I think we can look to nutrition for some of those solutions because children's brains are developing so quickly and so rapidly that getting good nutrition throughout their childhood is is just really vital and you can make a big difference in quite a short period of time with children because they're what we call neuroplasticity, the sort of structure of their brain, their ability to create new brain pathways and new brain cells and things like that is so is so 
um, optimal age, you know, kids we can make a big difference with quite quickly in terms of nutrition and brain health. Well, I, I'm glad you, you brought up the, the idea of, uh, you said something about uh, calm uh, and peace or something like that. And it made me think about, you know, bedtime is so tough for a lot of kids. Uh, and I have people say like, you know, drink chamomile tea. As a kid, you know, your mom may have given you milk and cookies to help you sleep or right before bed. Uh, what is, is there a little snack that we should eat or drink that, to help us sleep at night? Or should we go by the whole, you know, don't eat two to three hours uh, before bed? No, so kids, um, particularly as they're growing really rapidly, really benefit from a snack, a healthy snack before they go to bed. Because otherwise they tap into their nutrient stores overnight. So it's quite easy for them to break down protein and muscle and things like that if they're going a long time between meals. So growing children benefit from a, a, a snack before they go to bed, not necessarily just before. And obviously be careful about teeth brushing and things like that. Um, but ultimately, interestingly, around these kind of old wives tales, like having cocoa before bed and things like that, there's actually some really useful compounds in milk and in chocolate itself that help to produce um, the melatonin that stimulates sleep. So it's not necessarily that having those things once will help you to produce the melatonin that will make you sleep. That's not really how it works. But the buildup of that those nutrients over time and also the ritualistic motions that we go through of having a warm drink, settling down, maybe reading a bit, being read to, that kind of good sleep hygiene, no screens just before bed, all this stuff builds into a pattern where we do feel more restful. Our body's getting all the nutrients it needs. You're creating this kind of safe space for kids to know it's time to go to sleep and they're going to be okay and they're going to feel safe and calm and everything's lovely. I, I'm not, I don't have children myself. And so I know it's very easy to slip into a space where you are tired, frustrated and angry that your child is awake and that, that can create tension and stress. I, I see that and I know it. But if you can try and break that habit and create the calmness for a couple of weeks, have that ritual, have the routine, then kids get into it quite quickly and things can improve quite quickly. It just takes time and, and engagement and wanting the, the sort of willingness and the want for it to be different and to engage in it and to, to put the effort in at the beginning. So you mentioned in terms of putting kids to sleep that there are components of milk and chocolate uh, that that can help a, a kid uh, calm and trigger that uh, melatonin response. So say a kid is going to bed at 8 p.m. That's their bedtime. At, at what point should they have chocolate? Basically, we're talking about chocolate milk. Or are we talking about cacao nibs in milk? What kind of chocolate are we, are we talking about? Or like a piece of chocolate in, in warm milk? Or what, what does that look like? And, and how soon before bed? So obviously every child is different. We're talking about kind of a massive age group of children. We shouldn't be giving cho chocolate to young children. We don't want added sugar, all that kind of stuff. But there are compounds in these commonly used kind of sleep aids, things like Ovaltine and those kinds of products as well, that contain these compounds that do help us to produce melatonin. And it's as a starting point, it's completely fine just to have some warm milk before bed. If you don't want to add, you know, cocoa and you don't want to have sugar, that's absolutely fine. You'll get the same kinds of benefits. It's just interesting, I think, to me, from a cultural perspective, that actually some of those old wives' tales, you know, they really work. Now we've done the scientific research. We know that they would genuinely work and why they would work. But it is about routine. It's about ritual. It's about kind of kids knowing and creating that sense of calm. But ultimately, if you 
think that giving them a little bit of say chocolate as raw chocolate as you can in their milk might help them to be compliant with it and enjoy it more then that's also completely fine you know it's hard for me to give that specific advice around you know obviously if your child is suffering with obesity or any of those things there are other issues but ultimately sleep is such an important part of our our well-being as adults and as children um if you can improve sleep then very often you can improve uh, things like energy expenditure, so how much exercise a child or an adult is willing to do, and also their energy intake. So sleep is important, and if you can get into good routines with sleep, it's often a really nice starting point in order to support people to make healthier choices later in the day and later in their lives. Fantastic. Last uh, two questions I have for you. Uh, besides meat, what are the best pro- uh, sources of protein? Because I remember when I was vegan, They'd be like, you have to mix the rice and beans to get a complete protein. Is that true that we have to mix certain things to get the complete protein? And, and if so, what are our best non-meat sources of protein? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reason that we talk about this with proteins is because all proteins are made up of amino acids. Amino acids are like the building blocks of proteins. And when we eat a protein food, our body disassembles the amino acids that we've eaten. So it takes them all apart takes them all into our bloodstream, and then where they're needed, it reassembles them into a different shape. And so important to remember that we are all just like walking blobs of protein. Like that's what we're made up of, right? Every cell in your body, everything that your body does is made up of proteins, these amino acids. So when we eat meat or dairy or any animal products, we're getting complete proteins. We're getting all of the essential amino acids. There are nine essential amino acids that your body can't reconstruct and make itself. So all of the other amino acids, and there are many, like there's lots of them, we can actually um, construct them ourselves out of the other amino acids. But there are nine that are completely essential and we have to get them from our diet every day. Otherwise, we can become deficient in those particular amino acids. And tryptophan is one of them. And that's the precursor for melatonin, like we were talking about before. So... These essential amino acids, they come from animal products really easily. So straight up, animal, any animal products will contain all the essential amino acids that you need, including eggs and dairy and everything else. Um, but with vegan and vegetarian sources of protein, we need to make sure that they are um, getting a good balance of amino acids. And all the different choices in terms of vegan and vegetarian options for protein contain a different balance of amino acids. And the key is to make sure that you get good variety of the protein in your diet. So soya products um, do contain all the essential amino acids. So it's fine to have those regularly if that's what you choose and that feels right for you from an ethical and environmental perspective. Um, But ultimately, the key message for vegans in particular is to have a good variety of your sources of protein, including pulses, but including some of these other protein sources that can really help you to make sure that you get all of those essential amino acids every day. I love that. That, I appreciate you sharing that with us. do, do we have time to go a little bit into your story? Yeah, We've been course. going for a while. Um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you took this time to share all, all this nutritional information with us because there's just so much on the news and, 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 and so much social media. And, and one week you hear this, next week you hear that. And, uh, and, and I know that, um, you know, you started this journey uh, from a very personal place. What got you into nutrition and health and and, and, and why have you, why, what, what's been your impetus for really wanting to help people? Well, 
I was a strange 15 year old kid who just knew this is what I wanted to do. So I was very lucky. Um, I was studying food at school. I was studying sciences and I was just interested in um, how I could help people to make their diet like good quality and for them to enjoy their food but still be uh, the right kind of diet for them. And I can remember a specific exercise I did where I was looking at trying to make a gluten-free meal plan for somebody who had celiac disease. And, and it really kind of just inspired me. And my catering teacher at the time said, have you looked at careers in nutrition? And I realized that if I studied nutrition, then I could be a nutritionist. But if I studied nutrition and dietetics, I could be a nutritionist or a dietitian. And, I, you know, I'm not sure that I really knew how my where my career would take me at that time. But I've loved every bit of my career and I've worked in hospitals in the UK. I've worked as an academic, so as a lecturer and researcher for five years. Um, and now I work for myself and run my business and do all sorts of things within the field of dietetics. And I'm very lucky because I absolutely love what I do and helping people makes me so happy. Love that. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, and is there anything about food and nutrition or weight loss that we haven't discussed that people should know about? I think that the key to remember with nutrition and with health generally is that health and optimal health always lies in the middle of all of the extremes that we talk about. So the very low carbohydrate diet is very fashionable now. And if we think about that being one end of the extreme or even the paleo diet or the carnivore diet and a vegan diet being at the other end, everyone lives within this kind of pendulum of these two extremes and our genetics, our DNA, our illnesses, our life, where we are in our life cycle, all of these have an impact on where we need to sit in between kind of, for example, a very carnivorous diet versus a very plant-based diet. We need to be kind and gentle with ourselves and remember that health lies in the middle of extremes. We sometimes think that getting up at five o'clock in the morning and hurting ourselves in the gym every day is the only form of exercise that's healthy for us versus people who sit down and don't do any exercise ever naturally best health longevity all of those things lies in the middle of those two extremes for the vast majority of people and some people benefit from a bit more exercise and a bit more extreme exercise and some people benefit from a bit less exercise again depending on life cycle where they are their stage what's going on with their bodies they might be pregnant they might be breastfeeding all of these factors we i think we need to be a little bit more gentle with ourselves listen to our bodies a bit more tune in and remember that health lies in the middle of extremes it's so true. Yeah, when I was a kid, I, when I was younger, I, in my twenties and as, and even in my early thirties, I was constantly just beating my body up with basketball, racquetball, football. Like I felt like if I if I wasn't you know near collapse, then I, you know I, I didn't do enough. And 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 really, it was just my way of uh, it was my coping mechanism for dealing with my anxiety and 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 depression. I just feel like if I wore myself out physically. I'd wear myself out, wear the voices out mentally. But of course, now that I'm 44, uh, I can't push myself to those extremes <laughs> anymore. So now I have to figure out how to like sit with the emotions and meditate and and journal and and you know just like yesterday I was saying to my girl, I was like, I'm noticing feelings of <laughs> discomfort. Like like I'm like I'm saying I'm having these conversations now. <laughs> At the age of 44. So you're right. It's, I think so much of our um, resistance or uh, uh, frustration is in trying to hold on to who we used to be instead of being aware and acknowledging and accepting who we are and where we are and what we're capable of in this present moment. 
Yeah, absolutely. I used to, in my 20s, I did a load of long distance running and I wasn't a very happy person. And I think that long distance running, again, like your experience, really helped me to kind of run off those negative emotions. And then as I got a bit older, I was still kind of trying to run half marathons and stuff. And I realized that I was having to take painkillers really quite regularly because I was in pain from running. And I kind of had to have this whole actually, what am I doing this for? Where's this coming from? And I was seeing a therapist at the time and we did some exploration of kind of my role in the family and how I was kind of the sporty one and how my dad gave me a lot of approval for being, you know, doing a lot of exercise. And I was like, oh God, it's my daddy issues again. This is why I do this to myself. And um, yeah, just unpacking all of that stuff, your relationship with exercise and your body changes. It's important to acknowledge it and feel it and pain and, and all those things are there to tell you, to give you a message, right? You need to listen to it. It's so true. And and I feel like, you know, because uh, reading through your bio, you also had a history where you were in an abusive relationship. And and I wonder if like, you know, uh, there's a there's a Zen quote that says as above, so below. So it's like if if we're punishing our, our bodies from within, then we're I, I guess in some ways looking for punishment uh, externally. Did you did you find that? And how did you get out of that abusive relationship? Yeah, I think um, I definitely hadn't appreciated like my vulnerability within that abusive relationship. My ex was sort of proper sociopathic type person. His whole everything he told me about himself and his past and his present even was was a complete lie. And that was very hard to get my head around. I think what I was looking for from him was this certainty that I didn't have in myself. And I didn't have this kind of security and belief in myself, but he had this completely narcissistic belief in himself that he could do anything it was just about to achieve these amazing things in the way that these people do um and it was a very very difficult situation and what i'm grateful in a lot of ways for it because it brought me to therapy um it, it i was in such a dark place if i hadn't have gone and seen a therapist i don't know what i would have done to myself and the reason you know the reason i went to therapy was awful and i wouldn't wish it on anyone but going to therapy and having talking therapy means that I know myself better. I believe in myself. Those things that I was looking for from a narcissist, I don't need from someone else anymore. I have that in a healthy way from myself. And I think that understanding yourself is the key to saving yourself. And then you're not so vulnerable. And then you're kind of in a good position to be able to uh, move forward with your life in a positive way. I know myself better now than I ever did. I'm a much more truer version of myself than I ever have been. And I like my life. Like I have a really nice time. Everything's lovely. And I make myself really happy. And that's a super positive place to be. I'm going to add lovely to my vernacular also. Things are, are really quite <laughs> lovely. Wait, do do men say lovely in 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 England? Yeah, you can pull that off, Leo. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I really had a quite a lovely time. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> lovely and brilliant, and get on. I'm I'm going to add those to the CDO vernacular. Um, do you, do you have a? I have a. You know, when I go for a walk in the morning, I, I'm always reciting a a mantra. Do you have a, a mantra that you you repeat that, that kind of keep you on track? Or some type of self-talk? Yeah. Absolutely. So one of the things that was awful for me coming out of that, one of the things I should say is that my sister, my younger sister, completely saved my life in that relationship. And I was when it, when it culminated in violence, I was able to reach out to her and tell her what had happened. And she just went 
she was incredible. Like she gave me a secret phone and told me exactly what we were going to do and said, you can come and live with me for as long as you need to. And I did. I lived on her living room floor for three months and completely decompensated. And she looked after me and she was just incredible. So I'm so lucky to have that. But around that super dark time, one of the things I had been made to feel was that I was a complete failure. And everything that I did, everything, every little thing that I went wrong, went wrong, even if I like missed my stop on the tube or, or took the wrong direction or was two minutes late for a meeting because I because of something that was completely out of my own control. I told myself I was a complete failure. Those were the words that I used to talk to myself. And just to give some context, at that time I was lecturing in my subject at the best university to study my subject in the whole of, of probably Europe. So I was lecturing so as a professor, top of my field in what I was doing. And yet I was telling myself every day that I was a complete failure. Those That was what was going around my head. And again, I was seeing a therapist who really helped me with some stuff around reflecting my own words back to me and making me say, no, I don't believe that about myself. And mantras helped me massively. So one of the things that I used when I was walking, when I was getting myself into this headspace where I just thought I was a failure, I would say, you are smart, you are powerful, and you're in control. And saying that repeatedly to myself led me to believe it was true. <laughs> and I think that stuff, those thought processes that we have, those ma- that mantra work can change things hugely for us. And that's, you know, I was talking earlier about being a positive parent to yourself rather than a high school bully. We can do that for ourselves every day. And it makes such a difference to your psyche. It makes such a difference to how you think and feel every day and how you respond to everyday situations. You're so right. There's, I can literally feel uh, the blood circulating through my bones as I'm repeating my morning mantra. And, and I also switch it up. I like to improvise in the middle of, of my mantra. But there is something empowering. I can feel my shoulders just naturally being pulled back and my head lifting a little higher. And uh, I can feel my feet kissing the ground. And you just feel energized and, and and I just realized that that inertia, that momentum, that enthusiasm that we want uh, can be generated from the inside, can be generated from our voice. Do you, do you journal at all? I don't journal. Do you know, I, I, I'm really dyslexic and I think that that has a part to play in how I am able to um, process my thoughts and feelings. So talking is the most important thing for me in terms of processing my thoughts and feelings and I don't necessarily need someone to to talk back (laughs) I need someone to listen and often I'll talk myself into the solution to my problems or into a you know a nice space but I need to verbalize my thoughts in order for them to sit and, and sink in and I think that I would benefit from journaling except that it's such a chore for my brain to do it does that make sense? So I think my learning difficulties mean that it would, it's too much of a chore for me to want to do it. And so I pick up the phone and I talk to people and verbalizing those thought processes that are going on helps me to hold on to them and to process them in a, in a more positive way for me. It absolutely makes sense. There, I, I journal for the most part, but there are times where I will just um, record myself talking to myself. Like I'll just hit record on my phone and then it gives me the feeling that I'm actually talking to someone. And then I'll just ramble until uh, I find peace. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. And then I, I like to 
I don't play it back. I just ramble until I find peace and then I delete it. I don't want to hear what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I think that would probably work for me because it is the out loud verbalization of things. Do you know, I was doing my accounts the other day and I finished it and I went out loud. You are such a good girl. <laughs> I was like, where does this stuff come from? But it is that out loud verbalization, affirmation, self-congratulation. That it, it, for me, it needs to be out loud in order for it to kind of, for it to land, I guess. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, he records his affirmations or mantras and then he just plays it back to himself as he's driving in his car or going for a walk. So that there is something about hearing your voice repeated back to you that that is powerful. Mm, I like that. Uh, Sophie, is there is there anything else that, that we haven't covered that you feel like the listeners need to know in terms of uh, nutrition or uh, get, getting out of an abusive relationship. I mean, you had a burner like that. That sounds like some homeland stuff right there. Um, yeah, it was tough, tough, yeah. like super tough. I, I'm not sure that, you know, anyone, like, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It was um, pretty horrendous at the time. And, you know, it lived with me. I was, had quite bad post-traumatic stress disorder and, uh, you know, terrible anxiety problems for a long time. I think any time where you live in fear of your life, that has a big impact on, on your experience of living for a significant period of time. Um, I would say reach out. There's help out there. There are incredible charities. There are people who want to help you. Everyone has someone who loves them. People, we just sometimes neglect those people, particularly when we're in abusive relationships, that the pattern of abuse is so often isolation. Uh, and if you feel isolated, one of the things that was incredibly powerful and helpful for me was going to support groups with other women who had been through really similar situations. And they exist online. They exist face to face. They exist in your communities. I think for me, um, coming from, so I'm kind of a white middle class girl in, in England and I grew up in rural England. So kind of Devon, which is a really beautiful countryside area. There's this perception that abusive relationships don't happen to people like me, but I promise you they happen to everybody. It can happen to anyone, anytime. Um, and it's okay to ask for help and reach out. There are charities, there are people, there are organizations who want to help you and, and they will support you. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Well, I find that a lot of people who get stuck, it's a financial thing. Did you have to do some, you know, like you talked about having a burner phone and having an extra phone. Were there any things financially you had to do that to kind of, uh, you know, not trip them up to like the maneuvers you were making? Um, so it was a very complicated, like financial situation was very complicated because he didn't bring any money to the relationship, but he made lots of promises that he was just about to be really, really rich. He told me that he owned a big flat in New York and it was on the market. And every now and again, he would sort of uh, tell me that he had a buyer and he'd even go as far as kind of, mocking up emails from buyers and estate agents to pretend that he was just about to sell this flat. He was going to have millions of pounds. So I should keep spending my money. Um, and he just needed a bit more money. He just needed a bit of money to pay the realtor. Or he just needed a bit of money for this. So in the end, he basically bankrupted me. And so that financial control was always with him in that I was still for a long time during the relationship, maybe for a few months after believing that at some point he was going to get this money and he was going to make it okay because I was so desperate for him to resolve the financial situation because I just didn't know how I could do it myself. And that financial control and that financial abuse is one of the things that I guess I'm still getting over. I still cry on the phone to my accountant. I still tell myself I'm a good girl when I do my accounts. Like I can't, I'm still struggling with that because this person you know, I had to start my whole life again. And and I think 
that stuff is hard and that financial abuse is underestimated. And I think when people feel stuck, um, it, it is very hard. And I can, I, I know that that's difficult, especially if there's kids involved and you just don't know what you're going to do. If you say to somebody, I'm in danger, my kids are in danger, please, can you help me? There are organizations, there are charities, there are people who will go out of their way to support you, regardless of what's gone before. Nobody wants horrible things to happen to people. Um, and, you know, there is help there. Reach out, even if you feel like you're never going to get your finances back or anything's going to be good in the future. You have that power. We're all capable of working and making money and don't believe that you're trapped because of money because money comes and goes, right? Sophie, I thank you so much for sharing your story and, and, your, and your stats and your information. This is so, such a powerful episode um, for, for the listeners out there. Uh, all the I'll link extra resources uh, in the show notes for not just uh, because, you know, Sophie's in, in England and I'm here in the state. So I will link both uh, local and global uh, resources for uh, domestic uh, abuse. Because uh, as we know, uh, it's not just uh, women. I, I, there are men who also uh, are in domestic abuse relationships. So if you're a, a male listening in and you're a, in a situation, uh, have no shame about asking for help and reaching out and, uh, and, and, and know that there are support groups for men also uh, who are yeah, in absolutely. domestic abuse uh, relationships. It's just not talked about that much. Uh, Sophie, I asked this question of everyone who's on episode. Uh, I was always imagine that there may be one person listening in who's on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Sophie? Pick up the phone, talk to somebody, even if it's a helpline, even if it's a support line, they are there for you. Ideally, let it be someone who loves you. And if they are not there or you can't reach out to that person, ring any support line, the Samaritans, any support line that is relevant to the situation that you're in and ask for help. Those people are there to help you and they want to help you. People want you to be okay and they are there for you. Pick up the phone and reach out. There is support for you. Thank you, Sophia. And plug all your things. Where can people find you? I have your supplements on the way. They'll be here in a couple of days. I'm excited for my brain health. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, you'll notice the difference. So uh, my business is City Dietitians. So it's citydietitians.co.uk. We offer um, evidence-based nutritional solutions to individuals one-on-one -on -one in clinics, either online or face-to-face. -face. We offer consultancy to companies in things like product development and app development, companies who are trying to enter the nutrition space but require expertise from a relevant nutrition professional. And I also do a lot of work with the media. Um, and you can check out all of that stuff on my social media, which is at Sophie Dietitian, everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And yes, so uh, I work with a company to design some supplements called Your Heights. So we've got uh, an amazing vitamin pill, which is a multivitamin specifically tailored for brain health. Uh, it's completely vegan and plant-based, so you can access it even if you're on a vegan diet. Um, excellent evidence behind it and honestly like, I know I'm massively biased but I massively notice the difference if I don't take it so I'd really recommend that just a little side note you can't outrun a bad diet or a bad lifestyle you still need to be doing all the good stuff but as a kind of safety net and an adjunct to that a vitamin supplement like this can help you I love that and I'll link to those in the show notes also 
And then I'll uh, I'll also let you guys know how my how my brain health is doing uh, in future episodes. So stay tuned for that. Uh, I'm excited to to receive those. Uh, remember, listeners, this is not a substitute for you going to get help. For you calling the one eight hundred number. For you calling a friend. Uh, for you going to group therapy. For you talking to a therapist. For you talking out loud to yourself and saying kind things and compassionate things and and telling yourself that you love yourself and that you're you're so proud of of what you've done and, and where you are and uh and it's okay not to be okay. Uh you know, check out thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly and and if you uh need nutritional guidance, we'll have uh like I said the link to uh Sophie's information in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's get to tomorrow together.